Hello everybody uh, and Kia Ora. In today's session, uh, we will talk about the planning and design considerations for walkable and vibrant activity centers where people live, work and relax. Uh, we have more than 700 people registered for today's session. Uh, welcome to all of you and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads and I will be moderating today's session. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. Um, a little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Uh, the project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Network Operations Program, which is managed by Richard Del Place. A little bit of housekeeping. Um, so our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. A few handouts for today. Um, on the right hand side of your screen in the handout section of your sidebar, um, you will find the report today's session is based on, presentation slides and the navigation graphic that explains where to find pedestrian content in the Australia's guides. There's also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions at any time during the webinar. If you could let us know the slide number that your question relates to, that would be very helpful for us. Um, you can also use that same um, question section to let us know if you have any technical problems. But a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, uh, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So leaving the session, closing your browser and rejoining uh, the webinar via your registration link usually helps. Um, this session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. And also, if you listen to podcasts, um, you can find Austroads in your podcast app. And um, it gives me great pleasure um, to introduce our presenters for today, Anne-Marie Head and Jeanette Ford from Ebley. So we will first hear from Anne-Marie. Um, she's an Associate Director at Ebley and also is a key member of the People and Places team, uh, which is focused on planning and designing complex urban environments for safe and healthy people. Anne-Marie has a specific interest in planning and designing for active travel modes and understanding the multiple benefits these modes bring um, to individuals, the community and the planet. Um, and our second presenter is Jeanette Ward. She's a technical director at Ebley and also a member of the People and Places team. Um, she has a diverse engineering background that allows her to see urban environments from a range of perspectives and a specific interest in street design. Jeanette uh, has been involved in a range of industry um, guidance projects and as a practitioner understands the level of detail people require for various topics. Um, so welcome to um, Jeanette and Anne-Marie and it's um, over to Anne-Marie now. Okay, so a project overview for today. So as you probably are aware, this webinar is one of a series of seven about planning and designing for pedestrians. We presented the first two um, last year and this month we're presenting five webinars. You can see the topics and the dates here. These next few slides about the project we've covered off in more detail in our first webinar um, in February. Um, the scope of this project included training webinars and we really hope that this suite of seven um, brings the key principles to life when planning and designing for pedestrians. A key part of our project team was the Austroads Working Group and we thank the people listed in this slide here. The research phase of this work was carried out in 2019 and so we recognise there are new techniques and practice evolving all the time. There have been other relevant um, Austroads research reports published. Um, of particular relevance to this webinar is research about classifying, measuring and valuing the benefits of place on the transport system. Um, and just a note here that Austroads develops guidance with input from um, jurisdictions, but it's acknowledged that some jurisdictions will retain their own guidance. And another note that there are no, we don't have any specific uh, COVID-19 considerations to talk about today. Just to recap that the changes to the Guide to Traffic Management um, as a result of our project were completed when those parts were updated last year. Uh, and we have also identified changes and additions to content within the Guide to Road Design, and these will be made in due course as part of another project. 
Given the information about planning and designing for pedestrians is contained in many guides, we've got this uh, useful navigation graphic that you can find on your toolbar um, and it might be helpful um, to find what you're looking for. So today's webinar, as Ekaterina mentioned, is about how to ensure pedestrians are planned and designed for appropriately in activity centres. We've also indicated where to find the guidance in Austroads. It's mainly in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 7, but we have also referenced other guides. Uh, we've included references in the bottom left-hand corner of the slides and used colour coding to indicate if the guidance is updated from what previously existed or is new content. And just another reminder that the design-related updates uh, are still to be incorporated, but we have um, presented the bulk of the recommended changes in our suite of webinars. Also, the Guide to Road Design part and section numbers um, quoted here today may change in the future as a part of another project that I mentioned. We'll also present some project examples um, to illustrate aspects of what we're talking about, but these are not included in the Austroads guides. So what is an activity centre? and how do pedestrians um, fare within them. An activity centre is a place that is a vibrant hub where people shop, work, meet, relax and often live. Typical features are there will be a concentration of people activity and therefore higher pedestrian activity. There is usually a mix of land uses, uh, a concentration of access movements by different modes such as bicycle, public transport and motor vehicles. Generally, they are uh, town centres or suburban centres, but they can also include special purpose areas uh, where there's higher activity density, such as major hospital precincts, university campuses and airport terminals. For example, the photo there in the top is Melbourne Airport. As I mentioned earlier, as I mentioned earlier guidance is contained in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 7, which is called Activity Centre Transport Management. Uh, that part also includes some activity centre typologies which outline the high-level traffic situation for the different types. So firstly, you have um, those with through traffic. These will be generally main streets through strip shopping centres or suburban centres or per perhaps rural towns. Those with internal activity and no through traffic will generally be city centres, airports and campuses. And then you have traffic-free situations, which are things like commercial malls and public transport hubs. Jeanette will run you through these three traffic situations and what they mean for pedestrians a little bit later on. So why would you initiate an activity centre project? Well, it could be initiated for a number of reasons, uh, such as the creation of a new activity centre as part of a development. It could be expansion of an existing activity centre revitalization of an existing centre, or it could be a special focus project such as safety improvements within an existing centre. And the project objectives are likely to be quite a mix of urban design, transport and economic vitality goals, and they could also include aspects such as improving stormwater management. Uh, so a multidisciplinary team is very important for these types of projects. What activity centre issues could there be? This is an excerpt from a table in parts in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 7 that identifies some of these issues. I'll just pick up on one of these. Let's talk about car parking, highlighted there in red. Any resistance to removal of car parking spaces, for example, as part of a reallocation of space, can compromise a project. So let's have a look at some tools you could use to gather parking data as an input to the planning and design process. Parking surveys are an excellent way to establish what is happening so you can have an informed conversation with the community. It's important to survey both occupancy and how long vehicles are parked, so that is the duration of stay, to inform the supply and also any time restrictions. It's helpful to classify the occupancy levels over a day. And here's a little graph that um, uses a traffic light sort of system to show the occupancy levels. 80 to 85% occupancy is optimum as it provides a good balance between using the valuable land area and activity centres efficiently, but not creating too much difficulty for drivers trying to find a space. 
Um, we find it's important to have data because people tend to focus on the busy times and not realise that the rest of the time the parking supply might be okay. And here is uh, an example of that. Uh, a parking survey shown spatially with the average parking occupancy shown. The local council here thought that they may need another off-street car park, but from the heat map they concluded that some time restrictions could be altered to spread the red, to spread them out. Um, it's also uh, interesting to observe what is happening. You may notice something you didn't anticipate. Another useful source of information can be enforcement officers because they are walking around all the time and they can be a wealth of information about um, habits and what's happening in the street. As I said, showing the results spatially can be very informative for stakeholders and the community to, so that they can see what is actually happening. So moving on to the types of pedestrians that you might see in activity centres. We are likely to see all sorts of pedestrians. There will be older people with walking aids, people with small children, just children in general, um, and people on mobility devices. Our very first webinar last year, the um, pedestrian planning concepts one, explained how these various pedestrians can be considered in planning and design. They're also likely to be distracted pedestrians, as we mentioned in the crossings webinar, um, there is an Ostroads research report on the distraction and attitudes to safe pedestrian behaviour that you can have a look at, um, and that provides some insights into common risky behaviours. Um, essentially, what we've been talking about in these webinars um, are the engineering countermeasures that can be applied to mitigate this risk. So essentially, separating pedestrians from vehicles either in, either in time or space, um, and ensuring vehicles' travel speeds are low where pedestrians are present to minimise the road safety risk. So while working on an activity centre project, you will need to collect pedestrian-specific data. Um, it's also worth having a look at our Measuring Pedestrians webinar from last year. You would need to collect pedestrian volumes, and there are a range of methods to do this. Um, there's a table in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 3 that can help you with that. Um, pedestrian behaviour observations are also important. So where are people crossing the road, for example, and where are they lingering or, or stopping to talk? Pedestrian audits, such as walkability audits or community street reviews, are also, also useful as base information, as are public life surveys, place audits, retail spend data, and also uh, SEPTED audits, that's crime prevention through environmental design. For an overall understanding of how this activity centre operates, you would need to collect traffic volumes, um, the distribution of traffic, and also speeds, cycle volumes, and parking occupancy and turnover, as I've talked about, and also the loading arrangements. So I've already mentioned that parking data is very important, um, especially if the redesign removes parking. There's likely, or there could be a backlash, so you need to understand usage. Here's another useful way of showing parking data with a graph showing the occupancy through the day. The blue line is the on-street parking and the green line is the off-street parking, with the orange line showing the occupancy for both. So this shows how parking is used through the day and also enables you to identify the peak period. Here is an example um, of behaviour observations um, that we also presented in the Measuring Pedestrians webinar. Um, it's uh, from the Future Streets project in Auckland, um, and you can have a look there on that link to find more information. But essentially, this was um, a case of using video data collected at four sites before and after street changes. And you can see where um, the high, the on the left is before the street changes, and on the right, the interactions after the intervention. Um, the before photo shows high-risk interactions in the middle of the road where traffic was free-flowing, and on the right, these don't exist anymore. So um, they have been displaced to interactions on the side road where traffic speeds are lower. And that was a result of implementing um, some crossing changes, zebra crossings. Another example of data to collect, here's an output from a public life survey undertaken as part of the George Street upgrade in Dunedin. 
public life surveys were developed by Gale Architects, and there's a link there um, to the methodology if you're keen to have a look at that. And you can see in this example, they translated the, uh, the, the information into an infographic to help people understand the data more easily. So it's worth remembering that surveys of current pedestrian activity may not represent true demand because the demand may be suppressed, um, there may be a lack of facilities, or there may be future land use changes that will increase the demand. Here is an example um, of a new lane, um, but the adjacent land isn't developed yet. It is set up for the future, but if you go there now, there isn't much activity to observe. Um, approaches to assessing suppressed or future demand are outlined in our Measuring Pedestrians webinar. And I also see that the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads have just released a guideline um, to assessing pedestrian demand that um, supports the Guide to Traffic Management material with a little bit more detail, so it might be ha worth having a look there too. Here's an example of, of assessing future demand using a similar condition study. Um, so this was before and after surveys from an area or street that can be applied to another street with similar conditions. And the change in pedestrian numbers is assumed to be due to the intervention or the scheme installed. It's quite a simple method and provides a rough estimate of demand, but the limitation is it can be difficult to find comparable sites where all factors are similar. Here is an example where data from numerous studies of shared spaces in Auckland um, were used to show the increase in pedestrians when changing from a standard street to a shared space street. Moving on to um, walkable characteristics, which we've talked about a little bit before in our other webinars. Um, there are nine key characteristics that contribute to a creating a walkable environment. The Guide to Traffic Management Part 4 lists the table with an explanation of each of these, but we thought it would be worthwhile going through each of these and how they can be applied in the activity centre context in particular. So the universal characteristics characteristic is to ensure the environment is suitable for all ages, sizes, abilities and disabilities. So for example, the mobility impaired people need smooth surfaces, shallow gradients and accessible clear routes. Um, people with um, low vision or vision impaired people need um, tactile pavers for warning and guidance and for things to be obvious. SAFE is mostly about creating low speed environments and reducing the severity of any injury. This can be achieved through speed limits and supporting design. Many activity centres in New Zealand and Australia have adopted 30 or 40 kilometre per hour speed limits. The support, supporting design um, needs to be the design needs to be supported through treatments like gateways, narrow traffic lanes and raised platforms. Providing a secure environment can be achieved through applying the crime prevention through environmental design principles that we've talked about in several of the webinars. Visibility and the ability to be seen is a key SEPTED principle. So providing appropriate lighting that supports activity, visibility and surveillance is important. It's important to work closely with urban designers, lighting engineers and septed experts on this. Accessible at a network level could be creating blocks that are permeable for pedestrians, for example, through the use of laneways or arcades. Melbourne's laneways, um, shown in this um, diagram, are the classic example of a highly permeable network and they add so much character to that city. Making sure destinations are within easy walking distance of key places such as public transport interchanges is another aspect. At the street level, ensuring the routes connect directly to other streets or paths is important. This could be via service lanes that are converted to shared spaces, such as the photo at the top, but also walking connections through large landscape beds to connect with other paths can improve the connected characteristic. Walking routes should be legible, obvious and inviting, for example, through features such as pavers with street and lane names that will improve legibility. This is a discrete wayfinding tool and can support other wayfinding measures. Also at high volume driveway locations and potential conflicts, they could be made obvious and there are various ways to do that, for example, through different surfacing. 
Convenience includes having well-located crossings on desire lines and with minimal delay. Continuous routes unimpeded by permanent and temporary objects. Temporary objects might be things like sandwich boards. We understand the bottom example where a planter box and steps created a pinch point for pedestrians has uh, now been resolved, so that's good. A comfortable environment could be one with less traffic and therefore less noise and fumes. This example at the top shows a street that had a temporary closure over the summer break to create a comfortable environment when pedestrian volumes were at their highest. Jeanette will talk more about this example later. Path widths should be appropriate for the demand to avoid uncomfortable and potentially unsafe conditions, and path surfaces should be smooth to walk on. Also, providing shade and shelter through the use of street trees or structures such as the example um, on the bottom left in Wellington, where at some busy intersections, people can shelter from the wind and the rain under these awnings whilst waiting to cross the road. Other facilities like water fountains shown on the right there and public toilets also contribute to a comfortable environment for pedestrians in activity centres. A pleasant environment will include features such as seating provided for people to rest, linger and socialise. In activity centres, you might also provide interest through street art and sculptures. In some places, you could close the street for events. The photo on the right was an open play street that was held on a main street in Christchurch City in March last year. So just a reminder to please send any questions you might have um, to us and let us know the slide number if you can. I'll now pass over to Jeanette, who's going to talk um, through design considerations. Thanks, Anne-Marie, and welcome to you all today. As Anne-Marie mentioned earlier on in the webinar, there are generally three traffic typologies for activity centres. I'm just going to go through these with some examples. So starting with through traffic typology. This is a common scenario in smaller regional towns and strip shopping areas that might be on arterial roads. Moderating speeds is one of the key objectives given the high pedestrian volumes. Here is an example of a main street through a town called Richmond in the South Island of New Zealand. I'm very familiar with this town as my mother lives there. Queen Street was rebuilt several years ago with a narrow carriageway that slopes to the centre of the road to allow all stormwater to enter a central slot chain, as the street was very prone to flooding. This street has a 30k speed limit and it works very well given the narrow carriageway, which is around 6 metres. There are also zebra crossings along the road, giving priority to pedestrians. There is a um, case study there linked if you want to know a bit more. It does talk quite a bit about the um, infrastructure side if you're interested in that. But talking to people I know who live there, um, it took them a while to get used to such a narrow road, but they all agree that it works very well in terms of moderating speeds. There are also activity centres that have internal street typology. So less about the through traffic and more about the traffic actually accessing the destinations within the activity centre. There are several examples of this type of activity, as you can see in the list there, and various ways to manage the traffic. I'm going to go over some shared space street guidance that we have added to the guide to traffic management. A shared space street is defined as a public road space reconstructed so that the sole emphasis is not on vehicle movement, although this is permitted. And a shared zone is the legal method applied when creating shared spaces. So that shared zone is defined as a segment of street or it could be a network of streets where drivers must give way to pedestrians. The speed limit is posted at 10 kilometres an hour, or essentially a nominal walking pace. And thus, a shared zone is a form of priority area if designed well. Creating a shared space street without applying shared zone status is not recommended. You can see there that the two different signs that apply in New Zealand and Australia, which are both essentially conveying the same message, Although with the New Zealand sign, you also need the um, 10k speed sign. We found in our research for this project that shared spaces have been implemented in the UK and Europe with varying success. 
A review of the shared space schemes implemented in the UK evaluated different types of schemes. The link to the report is there and I, I recommend having a read. The review suggested that the term shared space street be replaced with three street types that better reflect the type of streets that are actually being implemented on the ground. We had actually observed the same street types emerging in Australasia. The first type is a pedestrian priority street. So this is a street where you do apply the shared zone. The example there is Sports Street in Auckland, which we've already talked about quite a lot um, in these webinars as a, as a classic shared street example. But this type of street is where pedestrians feel they can move freely anywhere and where drivers should feel they are a guest. A level surface is used, sometimes with similar paving types and colours across the whole of the space. These streets have been adopted where traffic volumes and speeds are low and designers have sought to achieve these outcomes through the design. The second type was the informal streets. The example there being Jellicoe Street in the Winnie Quarter in Auckland. This is a street where formal traffic controls such as signs, marking and signals are absence or very much reduced. There is a footway and a carriageway, but the differentiation between them is typically less than a conventional street. Because of higher traffic flows than the pedestrian priority street, most schemes of this type have provided regular crossings of the carriageway, where drivers stop or slow to allow pedestrians to cross with confidence, either through formal crossings such as signals or zebras, or by design. You can see in that example that the tactile pavers lead a person to a crossing point, but they still have to um, give way but the environment is much slower and easier for them to do so. The final type is enhanced streets. And the example here is Queen Street in Brusselton in Western Australia, which I visited a few years ago. This is a street where the public realm has been improved and restrictions on pedestrian movements have been removed, so things like rails and bollards, and conventional traffic controls largely remain. This street type is on the limit of what may, may be called a shared space, but has been included, it was included in the UK review because there is quite a few of these going in. So even that example I showed earlier of um, Queen Street in Richmond, that's very much in that realm with the flush, um, flush all the way across the street. So just noting again that Pedestrian priority streets are the ones that will have the shared zone legal status. A key challenge when designing a shared space is that pedestrians, particularly the elderly, children and those with a vision or mobility impairment, often feel uncomfortable having to share the same street surface as vehicles. This may lead to these pedestrians avoiding the space entirely, thus reducing their accessibility. And this is not an outcome we want. It is important therefore to design shared spaces so that they achieve better outcomes for these people. And the way to do this is through providing a designated pedestrian space, which is essentially maintaining a continuous accessible path of travel. It could be against the building with differentiated by a special paving type that divides this accessible zone. The cross-section shown here is one that was used for the development of the Auckland shared spaces. So you can see the accessible zone on each side of the street, and then an activity zone, and then the trafficable zone. So even though this is all flush, through the strategic placement of um, street furniture, um, slot drains and paving, you can clearly uh, define where those guests who are the drivers are expected to travel. The example here with the accessible zone blocked is a shared space street in Christchurch. And when I first saw this, I thought, oh, no one's actually told the cafe owner how this is supposed to work. And then luckily they had a conversation and you can see that they've cleared that accessible zone and moved the outdoor dining to the other side of that paving strip. And that paving strip is that special paving strip that has been um, developed in conjunction with Low Vision New Zealand, such that cane users can uh, understand where they might go into a zone where there's traffic. 
Finally, the typology of no internal traffic. This is common in civil precincts, canvases, even some retirement villages. So I'm now just going to have um, a talk about pedestrian malls. Pedestrian malls require the closure of the road to traffic for use of pedestrians, but may allow deliveries and servicing between certain hours. So maybe first thing in the morning when there's less foot traffic or later in the evening. They can also allow cyclists if, if there is a um, you know, choice to do that, and that is usually through some kind of bylaw or rule. This example is Queen Street in Brisbane, where a building in the middle of the pedestrian street gave me a great spot to take some photos and observe what was going on. These streets are great for events and activities like busking. Pedestrian streets, like shared separate streets, have flush surfaces, making them highly accessible to everybody. Pedestrian malls can also have um, public transport through them, as shown in these two examples here in Sydney on the left and Melbourne on the right. The design of these spaces generally do not have devices um, on the ground to warn um, pedestrians of trams, but there needs to be really good sight distance along the street in both directions. And generally the way it operates is that the trams are limited to 10 k's an hour in this space. And they can operate with flashing hazard lights and warning bells when a pedestrian might um, walk out in front of them. Distracted, distracted pedestrians are obviously an issue here if they can't hear or see the lights, so they may have their headphones on or be looking down at their phone. And that's again why it's very important for the tram to be travelling very slowly so that they have the ability to react. So now I will cover some general design, design aspects. In the road space allocation webinar, we talked about the new footpath guidance that will be coming to the Guide to Road Design shortly, and how it's based on demand, both current and future. High demand scenarios include central city areas or locations where there may be a high number of pedestrians. So essentially, most activity centres will fall into this category. The recommended minimum width is 2.4, this allows space for wheelchair users to pass each other and for some um, crowds of people. But really, when it comes down to um, big cities like the photo there in um, Queen Street, the footpath is actually very wide because of the high number of people using it. And it also has that um, amenity or activity strip between the footpath and the road, which keeps the bus stops and rubbish bins, etc. And this is a fairly typical arrangement for a large city, where obviously two and a half metres would not be wide enough. So in that um, width table that we talked about in that previous webinar, the width is around the clear through route width. So this is allowing people to actually walk through without any, um, anything put in their way. During that webinar, someone asked about managing sandwich boards, etc. The top photo there shows an example of where a sandwich board zone has actually been established against the building. This has been designed so that retailers know that this is the space they can use and please don't take your um, sandwich board out into the footpath, although you can see in the very distance of that photo someone actually has done that. And the other key feature of this design is that the paving edge is quite different. So if you are visually impaired with a cane um, when you're walking through that clear zone route, that different paving type will enable you to tell the difference. Shared paths are unlikely to be suitable in activity centres due to high volumes of pedestrians. So cycling will need to be considered in another way. For example, specific off-road routes or calmed streets that could be shared with motor traffic and that's where you are adding for example your sharrows so that you can communicate that to everyone. Managing mobility devices is trickier, um, so that's your e-scooters etc. It may be subject to jurisdictional rules and management approaches, but there may be some areas where you may want to create a walk your wheel zone. I saw a few of these in Brisbane in very busy pedestrian areas. I'm not sure how well people um, use them, but it could be self-regulating by others in the zone, giving people um, the evils. 
We have presented this operating speed graphic a few times now, but just a reminder that there is a wide range of speeds. So think very carefully before you um, start mixing people. This footpath here, for example, would not be appropriate to convert to a shared path. During the crossings webinar, someone asked about mixing zones where pedestrians and cyclists would, may cross each other's paths. And I mentioned the blue and white check surface marking I had seen in Brisbane as an example. But I'll just give you an update on that. Some people have offered um, the, the latest on that marking and it is no longer used in Brisbane as it was found to be confusing and could um, obscure regulatory marking. So if you're in Brisbane, um, you can get some guidance in the manual of uniform traffic control devices for situations where people are mixing on bikes and foot. In crossings um, within activity centres, there's some specific considerations you will need to think about because of the high volumes. So this could be signal crossing wait times being set as short as possible. Um, you might want to look at the continuous footpath treatments at side roads if, if that's allowed in your jurisdiction. And again, these countdown timers um, are very helpful for people. But like I say, we've actually presented a reasonable amount of information on that in the crossings webinar, so you can have a look at that. With intersections, activity-specific considerations are likely to be that traffic signals are most likely used on sort of principal and major centres where main streets intersect. And these could also be scramble or barns dance crossings with countdown timers. And again, signal crossings need to be set so that wait times are as low as possible. Small low speed roundabouts could be used in neighbourhood centres or smaller activity centres, but do consider um, installing the raised crossings that we talked about in the intersections webinar, as these do help keep speeds down and give more um, pedestrian convenience. Just a note about tactile pavers at Barnstance crossings. During that um, intersections webinar, I'd mentioned that the pavers should go all the way around. Um, in that top photo there, you can see that they do, but not in a way that is um, continuous. Essentially, you still need people to be using them as directional aids. So you can see there that there is some pavers that take people over at 90, and then the pavers in the middle allow people to go diagonally. So that's just a clarification, but again, uh, guidance such as RTS 14 in New Zealand and um, Australian Standard will give you more information on that. There are quite a few examples of activity centre treatments in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 7. So I just suggest you go and have a look at those because it may be that there's something in there that's relevant to your project and, be, and could be helpful. But I'm just going to go through three projects today that might give you some help or maybe some inspiration. So Upper Trafalgar Street in Nelson, which is in the South Island of New Zealand, was made a shared space street many, many years ago. I grew up in the Nelson area and as a teenager, this was always my favourite street, a place to hang out with my friends and feel safe. There were a few cafes back there, but not many. But over time, the demand for outdoor dining in civic space is higher. And this led to a temporary road closure over a few recent summers. These summer closures of the street to motor vehicles were received very positively and the area was active and well used over the trial period. It also became very popular because it could be combined, combined with the church steps you can see in the background of these photos. So Council and Nelson are now on a journey to permanently declare Upper Trafalgar Street to be a pedestrian mall. This is a great example of testing something first. Here's a few more photos. You can see on the photo on the left that that was the very first closure, the you know, short-term ones, where they used planter boxes that could be moved out of the way. When I was there at Christmas, those have been replaced with bollards, and the area has been um, has had some astroturf added, so that fun activities such as these um, bouncy hammocks can be used, and they're in the shade of the trees. So this project is a really good example of applying a tactical urbanism approach to part of your activity centre. Ackland Street in Port Phillip 
was upgraded as a collaboration between the local council and public transport providers. The upgrade included wider footpaths to provide more room to wander down the street and go to the various food vendors. And also a new public plaza was created that provides a year-round space for activities and events, as you can see in the um, diagram there. To ensure that people can walk straight from the footpath onto the platform and onto the tram, the tram tracks were gradually depressed into the street in the vicinity of the two platform terminus. All other track locations are level with the street. The footpaths widen at the terminus to form the tram platforms, allowing level access for tram passengers. The Afton Street Village Precinct experienced greater growth in local spending than other benchmark regions, and you can read more about this in the post-construction evaluation that the link provided. This could be really useful to share with retailers and streets where you're working, where there may be some resistance to change. Here are a couple of photos of the completed project, showing the plaza section and the widened footpaths in the street section. Vic Walks have created a case study for this, and the link is there. Again, this could be useful for your project. And finally, another New Zealand example of a um, city centre framework. So Palmerston North is in the North Island, and back in 2013, they developed a framework that communicated a clear and coherent vision for the development of a city centre. The framework included 10 key directions, and the first was streets for people. This is focused on addressing the vehicular pedestrian balance, putting people first in the city centre by taking a movement in place approach. The work to deliver the framework will be, overtake, will be undertaken over time. And that's the importance of a framework, as it provides that forward work program it always links back to your vision. The street designs, as they will be built, align with the street design manual that was developed as part of the project. So I've got a link there to the design manual if you want to have a look at that, and also their program of work. But they also took on some short-term actions to try and help um, gain some momentum for the Harbour City project. So things like parklets, you can see the photo there, where they actually went around and found some places where this was going to be really useful for the public and also for the um, cafe owners. It's a win-win. Um, as part of this project, they also developed Parklet's design guidance. So that's another really useful resource if you're um, looking to develop these guides, uh, Parklet's. Um, rather than reinventing the wheel, you could have a look at these. Um, these weren't added to Austroads, but I'm just pointing out that they might be useful supplementary guidance. So, the new guidance can be found in a range of places, and as Anne-Marie said, the guide to road design um, changes won't happen until a current project that's underway to reframe the road guide to road design is undertaken. And some of the things that we added in there were also things like international street design references, which I haven't talked about today, but we have um, observed that some more international guidance may be required. So that's us, and I understand there's quite a few questions coming through. Amory's just looking at those now. So we'll move to questions. Um, Ekaterina, can you go to slide 21, please? We're going to talk go. about um, the parking uh, surveys um, and collecting parking data. So a question's come through about um, is there any data on parking supply in relation to business footfall or profitability? Um, the person has noted that there are many places with lots of on-street parking but also many vacant commercial properties. I can answer that. Um, there are definitely studies that have looked at the amount of car parking um, and how much footfall that generates. And um, there is a perception that you need cars to park right outside um, shops to generate um, customers, but that is not the case. Um, I know there was some work done a while ago in New Zealand, and I'm sure there's a lot of other studies that you could draw on to bring that out. 
um, but it'll also be worth actually doing um, a parking occupancy survey to see how many um, uh, cars are actually parked in that area. Just another thing with that is that you could, as well as parking information, overlay data such as retail spend. So if you were able to get hold of that, you may be able to see some correlation between areas that um, there isn't so much spending going on and the parking um, may have no influence on that. So there's absolutely you know, open options to add many layers of data um, and GIS is very good for that to see where patterns are occurring. Okay, on a similar topic, um, someone has asked whether you need to distinguish between employee and visitor parking, so the purpose of the parking. Um, and I'd say yes, definitely. Sometimes you can only do that by how long um, the cars are parked there, so that's why it's important to collect duration of stay data. Um, sometimes the parking will be allocated, for example, to staff if you're looking at private parking, so it really depends on where you're surveying. Anything yeah, to add? no, that's good. Okay, um, the slide 31, Ekaterina, not sure what slide that is though. Someone has asked, oh okay, someone has asked um, the, the council um, that they work for has a CBD on a, on a steep hill um, and they want to activate it to be an activity centre. How could they improve the accessibility or the attractiveness for such a steep slope? Yeah, so we've got a few examples locally here as far. We have a town called Littleton um, that's on a steep slope and obviously the um, streets that are um, run across the hillside are flattish, but the ones going up and down are definitely um, problematic. Um, there's certainly radical things you could do like that um, street in San Francisco, Lombardi Street I think it is, where they created a zigzag um, path down the street and created a, a real icon in terms of people visiting it, lots of planting, and that would get your gradients, but that's quite a, um, a radical thing to do. Um, it's a tough one, definitely, your topography, but without kind of any major earthworks, it becomes a bit of a challenge. And I think as long as you can get, um, you know, buses to the flatter streets to allow at least people to get there, um, that would be useful. But yeah, I do appreciate the challenges that you're up against there. Okay, someone's asked, what is the safety benefit of a 30k area versus a 40k area? I presume they mean speed limit. So um, Ekaterina, a few slides, oh, a couple of slides before this one, there's the, the safe characteristics. Oh. No, no, it must no. be 32, I think. <laughs> Try slide 30. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Um, so I guess what we're talking about here is um, the um, vulnerability of pedestrians in a crash, and um, we have talked about this graph quite a bit, um, but it's all about impact speeds um, and, it, and there is a um, range of risk levels depending on um, the particular pedestrian and the particular vehicle and how that person might be hit. So I guess um, the slower the vehicle is going, the more likely the pedestrian is going to survive. Um, but I, I guess what I mentioned in another webinar is we're on a journey, so sometimes a 40 kilometer per hour area is more palatable um, more achievable in terms of getting vehicles down to that speed with other um, treatments, and um, but ultimately the slower the vehicles are going, the better for pedestrians. Um, some uh, slide 36, please, Ekaterina. So this was around a uh, question around um, busier driveways and having the oh, having the um, surface finishing. Um, different to contrast and draw attention. Yes, that one, thank you. Um, so someone has asked, would it also, wouldn't it send the wrong signal to pedestrians because they don't have priority over vehicles? Um, and I would answer yes, we, you need to be careful about how you um, design 
any sort of driveway in an activity centre so it's clear, it's obvious to pedestrians whether they do have um, the priority or they don't. So um, in this case, this picture at the bottom should actually have the tactile paving, the tactile indicators to show that pedestrians don't have the right of way. Yeah, so that particular example, um, it's either Brisbane or Melbourne, I can't remember, sorry, but it, it was in that area, it was already kind of like a bit of a shared space street, there was very low traffic volumes. And I think in this case, um, the vehicles probably would give way, mm -hmm. but it was just um, to highlight to people that, hey, you've been in a predominantly pedestrian area, but now there's a driveway here. So I think that one would kind of work out um, to be pedestrian priority just because of the context, but as Emery said, you just need to think through. And it's mainly the high volume ones where um, we need to get the messaging right either way. Okay, Ekaterina, can you go to the start of Jeanette's slides where she talks about shared spaces? Sorry, I don't have a slide number. Um, 43. Uh, next one. And the one after that. Probably the next one. Yeah. 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 So the question was, is are shared spaces friendly to visually impaired and physically disabled people? So maybe that question was asked before I moved on to the next slide, but as I said, it's all about really being clear on the, the zones that pedestrians with a disability can feel comfortable in, and that can be done very cleverly. Um, there's also a question here around the three typologies, and have they been um, adopted? Not per se, so they we added this to the guidance to make people think about what they were doing with their design and whether they truly were creating a, a shared um, space street with a shared zone versus just um, an informal street or enhanced street. So even though they are still, all three are very low volume um, streets, they do have that subtle difference between them and I think that's what the UK review was getting at is that you didn't want people who are used to a pedestrian priority street coming across an enhanced street and thinking seeing a shared zone sign but it wasn't actually so it's more about those subtleties of design and I, I really recommend having a look at that report. Okay and just going on from that question what would the speed limits likely be in the informal street and the enhanced street in that case? Well, I think both of those examples are 30, I believe, not um, 10, but definitely no more than 30. Okay. Um, the next slide, please, Ekaterina. So, Jeanette talked about um, the special paving strip. Is that made out of directional um, tactical tactile indicators or something different? So in New Zealand, we don't have a, um, a tactile paver that we use for this. We use um, essentially a bluestone paver that has a textured finish. And Auckland Council spent a lot of time working with Low Vision New Zealand to develop this to reach something that everyone was happy with. I do notice when um, I've seen Exhibition Road, for example, in London, that they actually have a specific tactile paver for the same use called a corduroy um, tactile, and that's what they use for that differentiation. But from a I guess trying to strike the balance between the urban design aspects of the street and the practical use as a um, indicator. This is where we've landed in um, most of the design uh, shared space streets in New Zealand. Uh, okay, question not in relation to any particular slide, but do the Austroids guides consider pavement heat or um, so cool surface treatments, um, the person suggests it's important for pedestrian comfort in hot weather. Um, I yeah, I haven't seen anything on no. Austroads and that potentially is on some kind of uh, research wish list, I would think, because I think that probably needs a bit more um, work. But I think it's very uh, relevant to the kind of weather that um, obviously you get in Australia a lot, but also just with our changing climate, I think that's very um, important. 
Okay, slide 48, please, Ekaterina. The one about um, pedestrian malls. Yeah. Um, so this person notes that pedestrian malls tend to be successful only where there's a critical mass of people who can access it by public transport um, and don't work so well in regional areas where shared zones have been more successful. Um, is there a threshold of public transport catchment that we could look to when assessing whether to create a pedestrian mall? So one point I would make is that you, you did right, you do need lots of um, pedestrians. So we had a pedestrian mall here in, in New Brighton in New Zealand and it was really, it struggled. Uh, there was a lack of vibrancy. So what they did was created a one-way slow road through it and the um, retail experts' advice here was that you start pushing people closer to the building frontages um, rather than having them drift down the middle and just getting more of that critical mass. I'm not aware of any um, public transport catchments that you might want to look at, but I think it's a really useful approach as to, you know, where are people arriving and where are they coming from so that you can definitely um, get that critical mass in, in cities like Brisbane in this example and, and many others it, it's just lots of people and they work really well so if you tried to do one in a more regional town like the person says maybe a shared space um, option is, is a better, better option. Okay and slide 51 please Ekaterina. Um, so the person has asked um, how, in terms of the, the pavement, how do we handle um, when service providers dig up the footpath to maintain the service conduits? Should we be putting services in the carriageway rather than the, the footpath in activity centres? I'd say ideally yes, but sometimes the um, services already exist um, and it's very expensive to relocate them. So um, you might be just working with what you have but ideally, not having to dig up the footpath um, to get to services mm. is preferred. Yeah, so that example there, the, the entire um, central area was rebuilt and there was a consolidated um, sort of approach to the services and they were put um, not in the footpath, not in the road, more in that kind of activity area from what I understand. There's still some services in the road like water mains and sewers, but your kind of electrical... Um, and communications type services are usually um, behind the curb, but totally agree we want to be not digging up footpaths all the time. <laughs> okay, slide next slide, please, Ekaterina. We've got time for one more. Yeah. So um, just a question here about um, lane widths when cycles and vehicles share the lanes. So if you're looking at a 30 kilometer per hour street in a town centre, would you recommend? three metre wide lanes with cycles claiming the lane or 4.2 metres to allow vehicles to pass? Three metres. <laughs> Easy. 4.2, you will not get your speeds down um, to 30 kilometres from right. half. So, yeah. But you will need some potential traffic calming to um, help support that 30 as well, um, such as build outs and trees and all sorts of things. So to make the cyclists feel more comfortable. Okay, well we might have to stop it there. Um, back to you, Ekaterina. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie and Jeanette. Um, very interesting presentation and the Q&A. Um, thanks so much for your answers and thanks so much to our audience for their questions. Um, so yeah, we have half a minute left. Um, I'll just quickly take us through the next webinars on um, our schedule. Um, so we will have our final session in this series on the 26th of February, so please join us. Um, register on our website if you haven't already. Um, if you want to learn more about the race safety platforms, so join us on the 4th of March for that session. Um, March sessions also include um, webinars on on-road public transport priority tool, network operations planning, uh, bridge asset management and 
many others. So just uh, visit our website for more information. Um, and as usual, uh, when we close out today's session, there will be a survey popping up on your screen. So please take a few minutes, uh, fill it in, um, give us your feedback, let us know what you liked or didn't like about the session or what suggestions you have for future um, webinars. Thanks again, everybody. Um, stay well and safe um, and enjoy the rest of your day and we will see you next time. Bye. Thank you. See you.